Gospel to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll look at verses 14 and 15 this morning. Again, taking a little bit of a break from uh, our trek through John's Gospel. So we're in Mark's Gospel now, at uh, the very beginning of it, uh, because it's Reformation Sunday, taking a break for that. <clears throat> uh, many Protestant churches celebrate today as Reformation Sunday uh, commemorates when Martin Luther, uh, maybe a familiar name to you, uh, published his now famous 95 Theses, disputing the uh, practices of the Roman Catholic Church in several ways, but especially concerning the sale of indulgences, uh, which is widely acknowledged, his, his publication of that is, uh, is widely acknowledged as the in- inauguration of the Reformation. Reformation Sunday, it's not a holiday on every church's calendar. Um, so I don't want to give a whole historical lecture here. We can talk about any of this uh, during sermon discussion if you want to afterwards, but I'll mention just briefly um, two names, and I'll quote them at points in the sermon, uh, probably familiar to you if you've been around here for, for very long, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther was a German uh, monk and theologian, and John Calvin was a French theologian and a pastor in Geneva, Switzerland. And those are probably the two biggest names, at least nowadays, coming out of the Reformation, the two biggest figures uh, in the Reformation 500 years ago. Um, Some of their fundamental doctrines, some of the core things that they cared about and wrote about, and therefore some of our fundamental doctrines and things that we care about, are still officially considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be accursed, formally, officially. It's in writing, in big documents. Uh, accursed doctrines, just as we would consider several of their main teachings and practices uh, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Church to be heretical and disqualifying them from being a true church biblically. Um, so we're at odds with one another in some pretty significant ways. Functionally, we've gone our separate ways, uh, whether for good or for ill, or probably some mix of both good and ill. Uh, we've just sort of gone our separate ways. So. <clears throat> There's a lot that could be said about the church historically, and a lot that could be said about the church right now, currently, in the world. But the thing that the reformers wanted, which sort of ultimately resulted in this, uh, this big schism, unfortunately, the thing they wanted was not schism, it was not division, but reformation, as the name might signify. Right? They wanted reformation. Corporately, the church is always in need of reformation. Whether you're talking about the local church, like our church here, or uh, when you get to to larger levels of it, the regional church or the global church, the church is always in need of reformation. And in the same way, individual Christians are constantly in need of spiritual renewal, personal, personal renewal on that level. And this is true that, um, that at both the individual level, Christians, and at the corporate level of the church, uh, we're in constant need of reformation and renewal. It's true for the same reason. It's because we sin, and we need to keep coming back to Jesus. And that action of coming back to Jesus, that action of turning to him and returning, is, uh, is very biblical language, and it's called Repentance. So really, Reformation is synonymous with repentance, and at its best moments, that's all that the Protestant Reformation was ever about, meant to be about anyway, pursuing the repentance of the church, 
the repentance of the church, the turning back to Jesus for spiritual renewal in accordance with the scriptures. That stood at the very beginning of Luther's challenge to the Roman Catholic Church, those 95 theses. The first one he wrote has to do with repentance. And he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our whole life is meant to be characterized by that turning. And the, the entire history of the church ought to be characterized by that same kind of turning. So, <clears throat> it is not at all intuitive for us to understand biblical repentance. It is not intuitive for us, even for Christians. People have been Christians in the church for a long time, talk about repentance for a long time, and it's not instinctive for us to understand and embrace biblical repentance, real, true repentance. So it is worth our consideration on this 500th anniversary of the, the repentance, the Reformation. So that's what we'll talk about this morning from Mark's gospel. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us as we consider your word this morning. Jesus spoke clearly, but it means nothing if it falls on deaf ears, so we need your Holy Spirit to open up our ears and open up our eyes, to be able to perceive you as you reveal yourself in the scriptures, to hear the good news rightly and to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> After John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So what do you think? In honor of uh, Luther's 95 theses, we have 95-point outline for <laughs> sermon today. I don't usually do, I don't usually give you my points up front, but when I do, I give you 95. <laughs> um, no, uh, <clears throat> just three, just three points this morning. Uh, first, our, our misunderstanding of repentance. I think we need to be clear about how it is we get repentance wrong and how we misunderstand it. Secondly, true gospel repentance, what, what repentance really is according to the scriptures. And then third, what repentance might start to look like for us in our lives as we do it. So uh, our misunderstanding of it, what it really is, and uh, what it might look like in our lives, repentance. So first, our misunderstanding of repentance. When you hear what was just read in the scripture, when you hear that phrase, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what do you hear? What does it sound like to you? How do you feel? What do you, what is, how does that make you feel? What does it make you think when you hear, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? I think most people, I think this is fair to say, um, most people envision something like the angry sandwich board wearing street prophet, right? Um, threatening doom and judgment unless you change your evil ways. Is that what it sounds like? You've done the wrong things, and you need to do the right things, or else the clock is ticking. God is right around the corner, and he's, he's going to get you. Uh, the only way to be safe is to become a better person. Start doing things right. Clean up your life. Better do that. Fear-driven, guilt-induced, 
behavior modification. That's what we hear when we hear repent for the kingdom is at hand. Fear-driven, guilt-induced behavior modification. When the Bible says repent, we hear, this is not what the Bible means, but this is what we hear, it is instinctive for us, we hear things like, you need to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. You need to stop being wicked and start being righteous. You need to stop living the way you want and start living the way God wants. You need to stop making God angry and start living to please him. Basically, you need to stop having fun and start worrying, really worrying all the time about these impossible restrictions that are being placed on you. All because if you don't, there will be severe consequences. That's looming in the background, isn't it? Watch out. It is intuitive to think about repentance along these lines, and that is absolutely miserable, and you shouldn't do it at all. We're seriously misunderstanding the Bible if we think that that's what it means when it talks about repentance. Fear-driven, guilt-induced behavior modification. Total misunderstanding of the Scriptures. Here's the thing. We're locked into that wrong view of repentance, what repentance really means, because we're locked into a wrong view of God and a wrong view of what it means to have a relationship with Him on His terms. We're locked into a wrong view of it, so we misunderstand repentance. We believe, this is, I think, what's at the root of this problem for us, we believe that God is fundamentally a tyrant, the kind of king you don't want, that he's fundamentally a very strict lawgiver and police and judge and jury and executioner (laughs) from beginning to end legal system. That's what we get from God. We believe that God is fundamentally just wanting to make our lives miserable. He's watching and he's waiting for us to slip up so he can pounce and destroy and get us, right? Fundamentally. We believe it's somewhere deep inside, even if it's not on the the surface of our thoughts, even if we wouldn't articulate it that way necessarily all the time, uh, we wouldn't profess that. It is somewhere inside. We cannot believe that God is fundamentally love. We have a really hard time believing that, that he's always on the lookout to bring about good in our lives for our joy. We have a hard time believing that. So we assume whatever he means by repentance, a kind of change on that deep level, it must be oppressive. It must be contrary to human flourishing, actually. In other words, it's bad for us because we believe God is against us. Repentance is a bad thing that I don't want to do because God is out to get me. That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, God's always trying to stop me from having my way, isn't he? It isn't just unbelievers who have these instincts about God and about repentance. It's not just them outside the church over there. It's everyone in here. It's everyone who sins, and that means everyone, including Christians and churches. In a perfect world, this is my instinct, in a perfect world, I would be king of my own kingdom, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. 
all would be well, and there would be no need for nasty, difficult repentance. Uh, a couple years ago, a prominent church in San Francisco, uh, formerly a church in our denomination, actually, um, they said that they would uh, no longer view homosexuality as a matter for repentance. This is just sort of an illustration example. Right? Said that they no longer required abstinence from homosexuality uh, for membership in their church. They no longer viewed it as a matter for repentance, that, that people needed to change on that level. Uh, claiming that actually such a view is damaging to human flourishing. It's oppressive. It's repressive. Um, And what they've done in that is that they've judged for themselves what is conductive to, uh, conducive to human flourishing. They've judged for themselves what's conducive to human flourishing. They've determined what constitutes a good life. They've ruled themselves to be in the right and therefore God in the wrong if he says anything different. If he would insist that homosexuality is a matter for repentance. They've made themselves kings. They've set up their own kingdom and they've written their own rules. And if that's in conflict with God, well, then he's out. Now, I really don't mean to condemn them in particular or this, just nag on this sin, but I think it's a clear example of how we misunderstand biblical repentance. These people are not happy with the idea of biblical repentance. They think it's a call to a joyless life. They think it's something that counters human flourishing in their understanding. Right? But it's not the call to a joyless life of do-gooding under threat of punishment by a legalistic God. It's not fear-driven, guilt-induced, behavior modification. You've just got to change those behaviors or else. It's not that. In fact, we need to repent of that view of repentance. If we have that view, which is instinctive for us all to have, If we have that view of repentance, we need to repent of it, which means we need to turn away from that view and turn to Jesus Christ, to who he is and what he's said and what he's done for us. So this leads into the second point. What what is true gospel repentance? We've got to repent of our view of repentance. What does repentance really mean? The word repentance fundamentally means turning. It's simple as that. It just means turning. But it doesn't just mean that in abstract behavioristic terms, like turning away from doing evil, turning to doing good, stopping one behavior and starting another. That's not fundamentally what repentance is. Those terms, doing evil and doing good and repentance, these terms have no meaning whatsoever apart from Jesus Christ cannot abstract terms like repentance and evil and good away from the person and from a relationship to Jesus Christ. Repentance means nothing whatsoever without reference to Jesus Christ. Biblical repentance is turning to him. Simple as that. Biblical repentance is turning to Jesus. It's turning to God relationally as one person turns to another. I've been heading in the opposite direction from him, And now I'm going to face him. I'm going to turn and face and pursue and enjoy him relationally. That's fundamentally what it means. 
And that's the way God talks about it everywhere in the scriptures, uh, as we uh, heard in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 44, which Tim read. God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And Joel chapter 2, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. He's not just saying, stop doing those bad things and start doing those good things. He says, turn to me, because you're not facing me right now. You're not coming toward me. You're fleeing me. You're rebelling against me. You're fighting against me. In whatever way you are, you need to return to me personally and relationally. So repentance is turning away from sin in all of its forms and turning toward God in Christ, which is a personal matter. It's a, it's a matter of the heart. It's a relational matter. Not just stop doing bad things, start doing good things. It means giving up your own exalted judgment in divine matters, setting up your own kingdom apart from God's kingdom, giving up the pursuit of your autonomy in your own kingdom apart from God, and submitting to God's declaration in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Biblical repentance means actually true human flourishing, according to the revelation of the one who made us and the one who saved us and our king. True flourishing in his kingdom as we were meant to flourish. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is gospel. It's good news. It says that a couple times in our passage. And repentance is how we become realigned with that reality. Realigned with the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Repentance means dying to the existence that is apart from God and coming to life with him through faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance means emerging from the oppression. That's, that's where the real oppression is in false gods and idols who fail you, who enslave you and fail you. Emerging from that oppression into the freedom of love that's found only in the one true God. Repentance means you stop scratching at the dry ground and running on the hamster wheel of religion to get you somewhere and to get you something that you don't have yet. And repentance means resting in the fullness of grace upon grace upon grace that's already freely given in Jesus Christ. The grace comes up front. We call it gospel repentance because it's only possible because of the gospel. Grace has to come up front in true gospel repentance. John Calvin, this is a quote that's at the beginning of the bulletin, said, um, a man cannot apply himself seriously to repentance without knowing himself to belong to God. If you don't know yourself to belong to God, you can't do real repentance. But no one is truly persuaded that he belongs to God unless he's first recognized God's grace. Your experience with God has to be characterized by his grace and your recognition of that and that you belong to him freely and he belongs to you freely before you can even think about doing real repentance. And here's the gospel. Here's the grace of God that enables your repentance. You can't even repent very well, but that doesn't matter. Jesus has done it for you. You can't repent perfectly. You can't fully turn away from your sin to God 
turn away from your sin to God relationally in love. You cannot do that. But Jesus Christ has done even that on your behalf, and His doing so enables you to repent with faith and joy. So let's talk about that just a little bit from Mark's gospel here when it says in our passage, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God in verse 14, and in 15 he says this is, this is the substance of the gospel that he's proclaiming. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what's the gospel that he's talking about? It's the good news of the kingdom of God, that that is at hand. That's come near. Jesus' own presence is the nearness of the kingdom of God that he's talking about. The kingdom is near because he has come. The kingdom is, is near in the person of the true king. Karl Barth said that the, the kingdom is no longer just at the doors. It has broken in and crossed the threshold in Jesus. The kingdom has invaded the world because the king has come. Repentance and faith are the response that we have to that good news. That's the gospel. That's good news. That's cheer-inducing news. The kingdom has come in the person of the king, and repentance and faith are just the way we respond to that. And even here, so near the beginning of Mark's gospel, there's plenty of the gospel of God for us to talk about. When it says Jesus began proclaiming the gospel, the things that have already happened, well, it's pretty early in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. What's already happened? Um, Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River, and that is good news that enables our repentance. It has to do with our repentance, and it enables it. Baptism is a sign of repentance, right? It's one of those sacraments that we have. We only have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a sign of a person's repentance, turning, emerging, changing from one kingdom and one dominion to another, right? That transition, baptism is a sign of a person's repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and their acceptance in God's house. His own name is placed on us in baptism. So baptism is a sign of that conversion and that repentance. Jesus didn't need to be converted. Jesus never sinned. He didn't have his own sins to confess. He didn't need to repent for himself. He didn't need to hear for himself, you're forgiven and I love you and you're welcome here. So why was he baptized? That's been a big question. John the Baptist asked him that question, wait, why are you coming to me for baptism? Jesus never sinned, so when he was baptized, it wasn't for himself. It was for us. It was to pledge solidarity with us, to confess our sins for us, to repent on our behalf, and to receive God's love on our behalf. So when, when the Father saw his baptism, when the, when the Father saw Jesus' repentance on our behalf, his turning away from sin and turning to God, in our place and for us. When the Father saw that, he couldn't wait. He immediately tore the heavens open and poured out his Holy Spirit on Jesus and declared his love to him. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. 
And when the Father declared this to the one who was standing there in our place, and that was the reason why he was standing there, baptized in the River Jordan for us, for the confession and repentance of our sins, when the Father declared this to him, it was a declaration that also rests on us in Christ because he stood there for us. That's why he was there, to receive this declaration on our behalf so that now you would hear in Christ, through faith in Christ, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's the gospel of God that Jesus preached, and it's the context for our repentance. If you're going to turn to God, you need to know this, that his love is the first word to you. And then the very next thing that happened, as the gospel continues, early in Mark chapter 1, the very next thing is that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan to turn away from God. And this is where we see Jesus as the new Adam, the second Adam, the one who is doing our humanity right, the way that it was meant to be done the first time, unlike the first Adam, read about in Genesis 1 through 3, unlike the first Adam who was in this beautiful garden with his bride, his companion, in a good, healthy, perfect relationship, unimaginable to us really, He's in this beautiful place with his bride. He's enjoying the original perfection. He's enjoying dominion over all the creatures. He's eating his fill from every tree. And he's just upset about that one, that one fruit. That one fruit that would be nice to have that one extra piece of fruit. It would be nice. Don't need it. I've got my fill of everything else. Don't need it. It would be nice. And that turned him away from God. Jesus, the new man, the second Adam, our representative, was cast out into the desert, not the garden, the desert, the wilderness, alone except for the wild beasts, the untamed ones, starving for 40 days to endure Satan's temptations. Everything that the devil had, he threw at him. But Jesus remained true. He was faithful. He did not sin. He stayed riveted on God, his Father. Stayed riveted there. He's the only human being ever to do so, and he did so for our sake, in our place. He took our humanity, and he turned it toward God. He turned it toward God in himself. He's repented in our place. This is the gospel of God that he's proclaimed. The kingdom of God has come near to us in him, the peaceable kingdom where God has his rightful place, and it's good. Where God is truly known as he is, as good. Where humans have turned away from sin because it is not good over there. Whatever your sin looks like. It's not good. Turn to God in Christ where we've found reconciliation and restoration and renewal in him, in our turning to him. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's taken our humanity and he's turned it to God once and for all in himself. 
Vicariously, he's realigned our humanity with God's declaration of reality, and this is what makes our own repentance, our own turning to God, our own faith possible. And now, because of him, because of his grace, that's what comes up front, not threats, not fear. Because of his grace, you may turn back to God for life, for fullness, for glory, for true human flourishing found in relationship with him, to hear the words that are spoken to Christ, you're my beloved son, I'm well pleased with you, and to have that stand and over your whole life. God is no killjoy, his kingdom is no tyranny, repentance is good, turning to him is good, because he is good. So says the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all the Reformation hoped to recover, a realignment, continual realignment, based on the good news of God's grace, a relational realignment with God and his kingdom. Robert Capon has that quote at the beginning of the bulletin. I know some of you uh, have enjoyed it in the past. We'll read it again. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel After all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale, neither goodness nor badness, nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. So here's a stiff shot of straight grace. In this life, you will never stop sinning. In this life, you will never perfectly repent and turn to God, but that is irrelevant. You are forgiven. Jesus Christ has turned to God for you. Therefore, you are free, actually, to to believe that God loves you that he has declared once for all, you're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. You're free to believe that and turn your face right toward him. So what does that look like, maybe? Uh, What what might repentance look like for people like us? Um, It still is instinctive for us to, to find repentance and the call to repentance very difficult for us. When Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's really hard to hear that as good news, right? A call to something good. But he says, those whom I love. Those whom I love. Like a good shepherd, he is steering us back to God. He knows for us, he knows what's good for us. He knows better than we do. He's steering us back to God, even though our instincts are to resist and run away. But if we believe that he loves us, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. If we believe that he loves us, 
we know that when he tells us to repent is for our good. We can trust him. Coming from Jesus, then, telling people to repent, to stop their specific rebellion against God, whatever that may be, your life is full of it, mine is too, telling people to stop their specific rebellion against God is not the same thing as condemning them. It is not the same thing as consigning them to a life of misery and joylessness. Coming from Jesus, telling people to repent is what he does because he loves us. It's a function of his love. It's the shape of his love as it comes toward us. He wants what's best for us. If there's an idea of human flourishing, he's got it, and he wants it for us, and he knows it'll be found in our repentance, our turning to God. Sin and God are mutually exclusive. So Jesus says, turn to God. Turn away from your behaviorism and turn to God. Turn to God for a relationship through Jesus Christ. Turn away from the pursuit of satisfaction in yourself, that you could ever be good enough and do right enough, satisfaction in your accomplishments. Turn away from that. Turn to drink from the fountain of living waters and find all your satisfaction in the triune God of love who has already given himself to you. You can, you can turn. You can turn away from creating your own identity, your own reputation, establishing and managing your image through things like your career or fashion or the use of social media. You can turn away from that, and you can turn to Jesus Christ, to him alone, to hear what he has to say about you and to discover your identity in him through your spiritual union with him. You can turn away from people-pleasing, from the compulsion to live for other people's opinions. You can turn to Jesus Christ who accepts you unconditionally up front before you've done anything good or bad. You can turn away from resentment of God. You can turn away from suspicion toward God. You can turn away from that and turn to Jesus who shows God, reveals God to be good and wise and kind and ever gracious and loving toward people like us. You can turn away from your desire for power, your desire for control, and you can turn to the one true king and submit to him and learn from him what it means to be human in a right relationship with God, to live in God's kingdom. You can learn that from Jesus. You can turn away from finding your righteousness in things that separate you from other people reasons to distinguish yourself from others, your righteousness found in things that divide you from other people and other Christians and other churches. You can turn away from things like always having to be right, turning away from righteousness found in good living. And you can turn to Jesus Christ in his grace by faith for the righteousness 
that he provides as a free gift in order to bring us together with God and with each other. That's the point of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ is to reunite parties that have been divided. You can turn away from your ideals for the church. You can turn away from your judgments about the church. You can turn away from all the restless, frustrated complaints about what's wrong with the church. You can turn away from that and turn to Jesus, who has once and for all perfected our salvation and given us every reason to rejoice in him together with thanksgiving. There's always more reformation possible. There's always deeper repentance to be made. There are always further opportunities. That's how we should view them. Opportunities to turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So take that as good news for yourself and tell it to others as such. Repentance is a good thing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, even though um, your word comes to us clearly and we see your goodness in Jesus Christ, and we see what it means to have a relationship with you that is characterized by your grace and our repentance through faith in Jesus Christ because of Jesus, the perfect repenter, even though this is all clear and it makes sense to us, um, to some degree at least, uh, we just don't live like any of it were true. We pray that you would make your kingdom beautiful to us, your authority good, your gospel true. We pray that when we hear your word, and when we see Jesus Christ presented to us in it and held forth in the gospel, that we would be attracted rather than repulsed. We pray, in other words, for the work of your Holy Spirit to take our hearts and turn them away from sin and turn them toward you. And we know that this is possible as a gift of your grace because you are who you are, because you love us and you gave your son Jesus for us. And you are willing to give your spirit to us to turn our hearts to you. So we pray for your help in that now and always. We are at your mercy and we have your mercy. We thank you through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.